There's a word that I use quite frequently, and uh, sometimes people say, oh no, he's going to say that again. Uh, and the word is context. I think that word is so important that I recommend that you write it down at the top of your bulletin right now so that you take it with you and you memorize it and you use it from now on. Because every time that you open the scriptures, the scriptures are meant for you to have taken them in in the context in which they have been presented. Context. And we're going to talk about context today in a specific way. We're going to be looking at John 3.16. That's one of those standalone verses. If all we had was this one verse, for God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And guess what? I just rattled that out. Didn't have to think about a word. It's just memorized. It's burned into my memory. And I would guess that just about every one of you could do the same thing. Do I really understand what God has just told me in that one verse? And the answer is, most of us would say, well, sure, I understand. But it's because we have in some parts taken that verse in the context of the other information that God has given us. And where is that information found? Uh, I'll think of it in a minute. Oh, I know. It, the Bible, the one that I was supposed to have up here with me uh, when I do this message. So today we're going to look at the context of John 3.16. And you might find yourself a little bit surprised at the context because it goes a little bit, maybe a whole lot, beyond John chapter 3, verses 15, 16, and 17. Let's take a look as we go through this message together. So let's pray, and then we're going to be looking at, some say, the most familiar Scripture uh, verse in all of the Bible. Gracious, loving, heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you this wonderful, beautiful day, another day in which we can bask ourselves in the radiance of your word. And we just ask now that you would clear our minds of everything that might interfere, that we might completely understand what you have for us this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I read the contact verse for you. John 3.16. King James English. Oh, by the way, it's problem we have today, or problem that I sometimes have, is all of my verses are memorized King James. And so when I rattle off a verse, it's King James. And many of you don't read King James. And so you try to say the verse the way I say it, and it doesn't come out exactly right. And I'll have to admit that when I'm sitting out there and somebody quotes a verse from the New American Standard or whatever, when the verse is a bit different, I have trouble, even as I know the verse, I have to say it King James, because that's what's here. So I won't apologize, because this is the King James version. Some people say there is no other version. Well, I'm not here to say that. 
we're here to do something else. Context is the word, and context is what we're going to be looking at today. In order to truly understand the context, there's, we need to understand who Jesus was speaking to, and this is red letter. That is to say, Jesus said these words. These aren't the words of John, although we're reading it from John. Jesus said these words. John is telling us that Jesus said, for God so loved the world. And then the rest of the verse. And there it stands alone all by itself. Sometimes we think there's other verses that stand alone all by themselves. And in some ways they do. But they always fall short when they try to stand up by themselves. Franklin Graham just beats to death. John fourteen six. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. You've heard him say that almost every time he says something uh, on television. And I'm not criticizing him for that. That's his moving verse, and that's the verse he uses. And it's, it says a lot, but it doesn't say it all. In our Bible study, we've been uh, studying about different things in the Bible, and we've come to understand that this entire book, all 66 books, all however many chapters it is, and I don't have the statistics, I haven't memorized them, and I didn't look them up, to be quite honest with you. All of the words, every single word, from in the beginning God to even so come Lord Jesus at the end, from Genesis to Revelation, it's all there for you and for me in order that we might come to know and understand who God is. That's what this book is about. That's what it's about. It's not about Abraham. It's not about Moses. It's not about David. It's not about anybody except God himself and God the Son. That's it. Everybody else are supporting players, as the Bible teacher in our video series has told us. And it's so very, very true. And it answers a question for us quite frequently. They say, well, gee, I, I wish I knew more about this person or that person or that woman. How come that woman didn't even have a name? The woman at the well. Was her name Lydia? Was her name Susie? Was it, what was her name? Because of what this is for and what this is about, it's not important to know what her name was. Just that there was a woman and we knew enough about her to know that Jesus was willing to reach out and to touch her no matter who she was. No matter what her name was, he was willing to reach out and to touch her. And that's the good news. That's the news that even, and this isn't part of the message actually, but it even speaks to, for God so loved the world. And the world is not the dirt that we stand on. The world is all of us. We are the special creation. God created us in his image. Uh, We have soul. We have spirit. We have an opportunity of coexisting with God in eternity. For God so loved the world. That means he loves all of us. Every single one of us. All, however many billion people there are on the earth today. God loves us and has a wonderful plan for our lives, not just mine, not just those of us that are in the room today, not just you got the idea. Every single person 
God has a place for. For God so loved. But how does that work? How do we know that? We see that in the context of the chapter. So let's look then at chapter 3. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. There is so much in that verse to tell us who Nicodemus is. First it says he was a Pharisee. Well, what's a Pharisee? Well, that was one of the Jewish sects, S-E-C-K-S. Did I spell it right? I think so. Uh, about There were about 6,000 of them at that time. And they were a special class of Jews. And their lives were dedicated to the purpose of obeying all of the laws that God had laid down. They believed that Leviticus was the book of books. Got to do it this way. Be it Sabbath or dietary laws or whatever the law was, we're going to do everything in our personal power to obey all of those laws and we're going to shake our fingers at you who violate those laws. That's what a Pharisee is. Now, also it says he was a ruler of the Jews. That means that he was part of the ruling council. That means he was part of what we call the Sanhedrin. That means he really knew his Pentateuch. That's the first five books. He knew his scripture. He knew what God had said through Moses. He knew about Mount Sinai. He knew about the Ten Commandments. He knew, and so on, and so on, and so on. To the point that he could actually quote good King James English. Oh, no, no. He spoke in another language, didn't he? But he knew directly from their scrolls, directly from their scripture, I'll call it, I can tell you exactly what God has for you, Old Testament. That's Nicodemus. That's who he is. And Jesus, that same came to Jesus by night, it says in verse 2, and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, For no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. What miracles? We have to go back to chapter 2 to find out what miracles. And if we look at the miracles, the first of the miracles, we all probably know this uh, from Bible study at one time or another, was water into wine at the wedding of Cana. And then in verse 11 of chapter 2, I think it's 11, the beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested forth his glory and his disciples believed on him. That's verse 11. It's almost one verse tells us the purpose of miracles. That's the miracle we're talking about. But we might also be talking about what goes on in chapter 2 because From there, Jesus goes and does what? He cleansed the temple the first time. He overturns the tables. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Take these things hence. Make not my uh, father's house a house of merchandise or a den of thieves, depending on what scripture, uh, what version you read. That's what we're talking about. And that's what has in uh, exercised uh, Nicodemus, that's the wrong word, uh, to come. But notice when he came. 
The same came to Jesus by night. By night. You don't do anything at night. Now, we don't understand that. Night is just part of the day. We have flashlights. We have headlights on our cars. We have lights on our house if the batteries are working, if we paid the electricity. You know, we have lights. We might have to slow down a little bit. We can't, we don't have quite the vision that we had in the daytime. And I'll have to admit, my night vision's getting worse and worse all the time. I don't understand it. Well, I do understand it. I just don't want to admit it. But there it is. But we don't think in terms of, well, night's just part of the day. Until I actually go into the bedroom and lay my head down on the pillow, the day is still working. And there's not anything that I do during the day that I can't extend into the night with some modifications. I study scripture at night. I study scripture in the daytime. I write sermon messages in the daytime and then hone them down, actually probably do better work at night. Less distractions. But he came by night, and by night here, he snuck in. He snuck in. Now in context, oh, there's that word again. In context, we ask, well, who else was it? Was that just a private meeting between Nicodemus and, and Jesus? Probably not. Does the scripture absolutely shout it out and say it? No. But we see how chapter 2 ends, and actually verse 25 uh, should be part of chapter 3. The split should have been uh, at verse 24, but we'll talk about that another day because that's not the point of the context today. But some of the disciples were there. Read chapter 2 and tell me where the disciples would have completely left Jesus alone. Jesus was never alone. In the three years of his ministry, find me a place where Jesus was alone unless he completely, Jesus separated himself in order to talk with God. That's the only time Jesus was alone. Jesus wasn't alone. And so therefore, the Pharisee, pardon me, Nicodemus was there with who? He was there with, and I can't name them, but John was probably there, Peter was probably there, etc., etc., etc. No man can do the miracles that you do except God be with him. Now, some say, well, that's a confession of faith right there. No, it's not. No man can do these things. If we go back to verse 24, chapter 2, it says, Jesus didn't commit himself unto them, meaning the people, because he knew all men. He knows your wicked, silly heart. He knows how feeble you are. Every single one of us. He knows the heart of man. God knows the heart of man. And in spite of the heart of man, God sent his son. Verse 16. And we're going to get there. Jesus answered and said to him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now think about the context Ooh, there's that word again. That context of this verse. And some say, where was Jesus coming from? Nicodemus wasn't talking about this. 
But Nicodemus was talking about this. Because right there in verse, uh, in verse two, it says, Nicodemus said, except a God be with him, no man can do these things. So we have entered God into the conversation. And Jesus answered, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You want to see the kingdom of God? Do you want to see the kingdom of God, Nick? Oh, Nicodemus, Sir Nicodemus, Mr. Nicodemus. You know, I mean, he's a, he's a ruler of the Jews. Got to give him some respect. Nicodemus said, how can a man be born when he is old? Where's Nicodemus? Nicodemus isn't spiritual at all. Nicodemus is, is thinking completely in the physical sense. He's thinking completely biologically. There's no spirit there. Jesus answers and says, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of spirit, he can enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I say unto thee, you must be born again. You must be born again. That's why we talk about rebirth. That's why we say I've been born again. I'm a born again believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. All of us have Suffered is the word. Be careful of the definition for that word. But have suffered physical birth. All of us have been through that situation. Everyone has. That's the way of the world. That's that's part of the of the world. That's part of our fleshly existence. But only those of us that have seen the light that Nicodemus will eventually see have we been born again. Have we been born of the spirit we have been we have been entered into the very family of god and jesus oh nicodemus answered and said how can these things be see we haven't even got to the big verse yet have we how can these things be now here's where Context just shouts at us. Jesus answered and said, Art thou a master of Israel and knowest not these things? What does master of Israel mean? I already told you what it meant. He knows the Pentateuch like no one knows the Pentateuch. That's the first five books of the Bible, you know, the Moses books. Aren't you a master of Israel and you don't know these things? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, he says, Jesus, we speak that we, that we do know and testify that we have seen and yet we receive not our witness. You receive not our witness. You say you've seen it. You've seen the miracles. That's what he's referring to. You've seen the miracles. And you think it's a magician's trick. Uh, I, I'm sticking that in there for you. So we better understand. Your mind isn't there. Your mind is on the physical things. How many of us have gone and seen a magic show and we sit there and we marvel. We absolutely marvel. How did that guy do that? There's no, I, I watched. I, and I came back and saw the second show and I watched him 
And I knew it was coming. And I watched him do it. And I still don't know how he did it. But I know he didn't. It wasn't magic. I know there was a trick. How did Jesus turn the water into wine? And the scripture says that that was the beginning of miracles. So there's any number of miracles that could have been performed that aren't recorded for us in chapter 2 that Nicodemus was referring to when he said, man can't do this stuff without God. Poor Nicodemus. Poor Nick. How can a man be born when he is old? Does he go, you know, back to the biological process, etc., etc.? How can he do that? No man, verse 13 says, hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man, which is in heaven. Now there's a spiritual verse for you. Let's look at it again. No man has ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man, which is in heaven. Son of Man, right now, contextually speaking, is on earth. Jesus is on earth. But he was in heaven. He came down, and he's going to go back up again, and we'll talk about that uh, in another month or so. And then verse 14. And here's where the context broadens itself. And Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness... Even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. What's Moses and some snake on a stick got to do with all of this? Do you know? Oh, has God told us? I have a little mark. Numbers chapter 21. Penitude. Which gets us back to what? The verse where Jesus said, Hey, you know this Pentateuch better than anybody that's walking on the face of the earth, except me. And you don't know this? Let me read to you Numbers chapter 21. And I'll give you the context. So I'll read a couple of verses that we're not going to home in on. And when the king Arad of the Canaanites, which dwelt in the south, heard tell that Israel came by way of the spies, and he fought against Israel and took some of them prisoner. Israel vowed a vow unto the Lord and said, If thou wilt indeed deliver this people into my hand, then I will utterly destroy their cities. And the Lord hearkened to the voice of Israel, delivered up the Canaanites, and they utterly destroyed them and their cities. And he called the name of the place Hormna. 1, 2, and 3. Jews were oppressed, prayed to God, God delivered them. They promised, they said, hey, if you, if you deliver us, we'll completely destroy the cities. They did exactly what they promised they'd do. Clean. Done. Verse four. And they, the Jews that just did what they said they'd do, journeying from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to compass the land of Edom and the soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way. Well, what does because of the way mean? Well, now we're in King James again. And the journey. It was a tough journey. It's hard out there. How many of you have hiked out here? I mean, this is a good desert. This is a good example of, 
of the kind of terrain that they would have been been uh, concerned with. You take a little hike out here, and I mean, we have people that still die on the mountain. They know better. They carry their water. They have enough quick rations to stay overnight, and they overextend themselves and they die. Tough. And the people spake against God and against Moses. Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. Wherefore have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no bread, neither is there any water. And our soul loatheth, loath, loath, hate this light bread. Light bread? What's light bread? Well, we have to, what's that? And if we don't know, we have to go back and look. And then we have to go back to Exodus to find it. And we find that God provided what? He provided the manna. And then we know the story. So the manna is mentioned here. That's the context of what we're talking about. We hate this daily meal that you have given us that we don't have to work for. All we have to do is to pick it up and eat it. That's it. No work whatsoever. Well, there's a little bit of work because on the Sabbath, we don't do it. And you've provided for that. Aren't you a wonderful, loving God? But you brought us up here to die. You're going to kill us out here. We would have been better off if we'd have stayed in Egypt. Verse 6, And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and much people of Israel died. Judgment. And I would probably stick in here probably the people who got bit uh, and they bit the people and much people of the of Israel died the much people were probably <coughs> the the loudest vocalist people that were speaking against God and speaking about Moses that's my input therefore verse 7 the people came to Moses and said we've sinned for we have spoken against the Lord and against thee, pray unto the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people. It's got cycle? Here we go. Oops, I sinned. Oops, I'm sorry. We finally figured it out. And the Lord said to Moses, verse 8, Make thee a fiery serpent, set it upon a pole, and it shall come to pass that everyone that is bitten, when he looketh upon it, shall live. Verse 9, And Moses made a serpent of brass and put it on a pole, and it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. Deliverance. Now, you can't miss the connection between old and new. With the serpent of brass, the snake on the pole, I'll call it, raised up. Now, you got to visualize it. We've got the nation Israel, approximately, if you read numbers carefully, two million people. They always mention the men. They don't mention the women. They don't mention the kids under legal age. You know, if you're not old enough to carry a sword or or throw a spear, uh, then, you know, you don't count. There's over two million people that are camped around the tabernacle that God gave them in the wilderness. 
How is it possible for any of those two million people to look at that pole with a snake on the top of it in the middle of a camp? Nearly impossible. Give me a break. How far can you see? What could I? Well, now I can't even see the tree. But uh, you got the idea. So what are we talking about? We're talking about faith. I believe that God would deliver me by this method. And so therefore, I'm going to look to where I know the pole is. It's right there by the tabernacle that's right there in the center of the camp. And I know where that is. It's just a little ways and I can't see it from here. We all know where Palm Springs is. We probably all know where City Hall is, but we can't see it from here. And so by faith, I'm going to look to that pole and I will accept the promise that God has given to me and I will not die. Verse 9. Back to John. Verse 15. I lost, did I lose the mark? I thought I could flip right to it and I lost a little ribbon. That ribbon needs to have glue on it. There we go. First chapter 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, and here it is. And Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. Even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. What was the problem in Numbers? They sinned. They separated themselves from God by sinning. God pronounced a judgment. And they asked to be forgiven. And they could be forgiven by looking to the very symbol of God. Which in this case is the pole with the snake on it. They're being delivered from what? The snake. The serpent. The fiery serpent. That's verse 14. Whoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. That's 14. That actually begins the paragraph. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Period. That's the end of the paragraph. And then, and then and only then, we come to verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Who is there to hear Jesus say these words? Well, I've read the chapter in context. There's absolutely no way that I can believe that Nicodemus wasn't the subject of this conversation. Now, anybody that's in the room can hear what I'm saying, but I'm talking to you, Nick, ruler of the Jews. Know everything there is to know about God from the Old Testament. I'm talking to you. For God so loved the world. And then, to nail it down, it goes on to verse 17, and it says, For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but the world through him might be saved. Double emphasis on the saving. Whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. 
based on the snake on the pole, we're talking about physical death. What else could we be talking about? I just mentioned the snake on the pole back in Numbers, Jesus says. We're talking about physical death. God delivered you from physical death. Now, he's talking about physical death again. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish. What's the word perish mean? Look it up in the dictionary. We'll figure it out. But have everlasting life. See, if you didn't know, I told you. Everlasting life. Life that's not going to end. And then to emphasize it even further, I'm going to tell you this. For God didn't send his son into the world, and I'm deviating from King James. To condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Might be saved. And then he goes on to say this. He that believes on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Take verse 18 and transfer that information back into what we know about the snake on the stick. If you don't believe in my promise, and you don't look to the snake on the stick, if you get bitten, curtains. It's over. You're dead. The serpent is going to kill you. And this condemnation, that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. Everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, that they are wrought in God. That is the context of John 3.16. Ten verses in Numbers, 21 verses in John, in order to completely and truly understand the import of that message. Do you not agree? John 3.16, can it stand alone? Does it have feet of its own? Sure it does. It's a strong message. But even stronger in the context in which it was given. And I submit to you that that's true of this. Our Bible study has taught us that God is the central character in the Bible. So therefore, every time I read anything in Scripture, there's God in it. And that includes the genealogies. Why are the genealogies? Who cares that he begat her and she begat and begat and who? If God is a central character and I know that everything that God has put in here has given me an opportunity to know him better, then I can ask the question, why are the genealogies important? And I come up with an answer. 
The genealogies are important for me to understand the very scope of God's love. So that when I come to John 3.16, and it says, For God so loved the world, that I can begin to understand that, even though right now I'm only concerned about me. Because salvation is a personal thing. Salvation is a worldly thing, for God so loved the world, but salvation at the same time is personal. I must react to the gospel message myself. Mommy can't do it for me. My drill instructor from the Marine Corps can't do it for me. My wife can't do it for me. All any of those persons could do, can't imagine my drill instructor doing it, is provide the message. And so, then we come to what our friend Paul says, and that's in Romans. And I dropped the bookmark on the floor. That's what's down there. Chapter 8. Here it is. I found it. Here's a dynamite set of information. Beginning in verse 35. Chapter 8, verse 35. And this we will close with. Because there it is. It's been promised. If we go back to Moses, if you look to the snake on the stick, you're not going to die. That's a good thing. Now, you might die of thirst tomorrow because you refuse to drink the water. Or you might trip and fall and fall down a mountain and break your neck. So you might die tomorrow of something else, but the snake isn't killing you. And so here we have this. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it's written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I, and the I here is Paul, am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That does what? Does that not put flesh on For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. Nothing shall separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for the very truth that you have provided us today. We ask now that you just open our minds and hearts.
that we might look at every single word that you've given us and understand it's for us that we might know you better and better and better and better in this earthly life till we come to know you perfectly in the life that you have prepared for us to come. And for this we give thanks and praise. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Okay. The thing about this hymnal is that it often has two songs with the same title. But not the same tune. <laughs> Sometimes not the same word. So we are on page 537. One, two, and five. One, two, and five. I will sing the wonder story of the Christ who died for me.